A Gay and a Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. Two unlikely friends take on the world. Dan, J.K. Rowling has been on again, suggesting that healthcare for trans youth is like gay conversion therapy. Yeah. I mean, I'm just tired. I think we're all tired of fighting these fires all the time as LGBT people. And that's, I guess, why we need allies to do some of the work for us. Because for some reason, a straight ally standing up for a trans person holds so much more weight than a gay person doing it or a trans person doing it, which is really fucked up and privilege all over. Yeah. But that's sort of the situation we're in, which is why it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Dan Hudson, (laughs) the non-gay of the podcast, who's going to take it from here. (laughs) Welcome to a gay... And a non-gay. Over to you, Dan. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. It's also really important having conversations with people that disagree with you, as triggering as that can be. Like I know when Dan and I first met, we had to explain a lot to each other that maybe Dan didn't know about the gay community and that I didn't know about the straight stuff. And actually, it's really important to bridge a gap between people that are different to sort of find that place of equality. And today, we're going to go even further with that on our podcast and hear an amazing story from a man that has turned his hate into love. So last year we caught up with Christian Picciolini. He used to be a leading skinhead gang member and far-right extremist in Chicago. He was the singer in Nazi punk bands White American Youth and Final Solution. His songs were racist, homophobic and misogynistic. Here he is in 1992 on CNN. Well, I believe we're warriors today and we're fighting for a great cause, which is the white race. Uh, The white people don't have as much pride as as I can think as the black people or Hispanics and I think we need something to unify ourselves and then the white power movement and national socialist movement I think that's a that's a great way to unite our our people but today he's left that lifestyle behind yes so he's now the co-founder of life after hate which is a non-profit to help people disengage from hate and with everything that's going on in the world turf extremism increased awareness of racism both in the US and the UK since the death of George Floyd It just felt like a really good time to put this chat out. Today, we hear Christian talk about his time in the white supremacy movement, how conversations with black and LGBTQ plus people have helped him to change direction. We also chat about gay Nazis. They're out there and what we can all do to stamp out extremism when we see it. And just before we press play, I should say that if you or someone you know needs help leaving behind hate and racism, please do visit lifeafterhate.org or freeradicals.org and check out the incredible life-saving work that they're doing. And if you've been affected by hate and violent extremism and feel comfortable sharing that with us, please do reach out. Email us. Our address is us at gaynongay.com. And consider this a hard trigger warning for this episode, which contains depictions of extreme violence from the very beginning. So here's Christian. A gay and a non-gay with Christian Picciolini. I think we're going to jump straight in, Christian. I, as a gay person, find it really hard to chat to you. And I guess it's because you were a Nazi skinhead. And in another life, you would have beaten me up in the street. Can you give me an example of something 
that you did and regret back in the day? I can tell you about one specific incident that still to this day is very vivid for me. Um, it doesn't involve a gay person, but it involves a young black man. We had gone into a McDonald's restaurant uh, late one evening just before they closed and there were some young black teenagers uh, in line waiting for their food when we arrived. I entered the restaurant with you know, my followers at the time, uh, very loudly stated that it was my McDonald's and that black kids needed to leave. Uh, so they ran out. They were intimidated by us. And uh, when they ran out, one of the black teenagers pulled out a gun and started to fire. Uh, but the gun jammed, and we were able to catch up with him and uh, proceeded to brutalize him, beat him very badly until uh, his face was swollen and his eyes were closed and there was blood on his face. And I remember very distinctly at that moment kicking him while he was on the ground and punching him, and then him opening his eyes to look at mine and connecting with mine. And it was a moment I couldn't understand but it was compassion. It was empathy that I felt for that man who I was hurting. That was really the one wake-up moment uh, where I knew I didn't want to hurt anybody else, that what I was doing was actually backwards, that if I cared at all about you know my family, my environment, that what I was engaged in was completely the opposite of what was helping them or anybody else. So before you saw the, the black guy and you, your eyes locked, we, it's difficult to get my head around what you were thinking then. Were you thinking, oh, this is brilliant, like mission accomplished. Um, this is like a triumph of the white race over, over black people. You know, there was always a lot of rhetoric of what we were doing that, you know, it was saving the white race or that it was promoting this warrior ethic or that, you know, we were engaged in a fierce battle to protect something of great value, the white race. But the reality was, is we were broken individuals who were intent on violence, you know, without any meaning behind it. It was mindless. It was our way of projecting our own insecurities, our own pain uh, onto other people without having to deal with it ourselves. It was cowardly. And I know this now, having worked with, you know, hundreds of people to help them disengage from extremism, having, you know, lived those eight years in the movement, that it was never the victim's fault, that it was always something that we were doing because we felt inept, that we felt unwhole, that we felt broken. And we were so ashamed of that, that we put that on other people for them to feel. So it would absolve us of feeling it ourselves. It was probably the most cowardly thing that I've ever been engaged in. Christian, I've seen some photos of you at uh, Dachau, the concentration camp, um, and it, they're pretty chilling. Like you're, you're doing the, um, the Hail Hitler salute in one of them. Being there, did that have any effect on you? Or are you there thinking, oh, this place is amazing. It's almost like sacred. That was very near um, kind of the beginning of the end for me. So absolutely, I was having doubts and confusion about what I felt. But I was also at a time when I was so afraid of starting over and going back to the nothingness that I had experienced at 14 years old, that uh, it was this fierce battle inside of me to both leave, but also to f keep that meaning somehow. So I can tell you that while I held my arm out in salute at the gates of Dachau with people, you know, in the background kind of looking on in horror as to what I was doing at that moment, I was probably the most scared and confused myself. But in that moment, in that photo, when I am extending my arm, I can tell you I am afraid, completely questioning my beliefs. I was embarrassed and even felt guilty while I was doing it but saw, saw no future, no option out for me from that movement 
that all I knew to do was to play the game and go in deeper because I felt that that was the only future for me at the time. You talked a lot about fear and how these people are sort of isolated. As a gay person, like I've definitely felt some of that too. And isn't it weird how we're all feeling isolated and afraid, but we don't come together? We almost go down different routes? You're absolutely correct. We all search for the sense of identity, community, and purpose. We all hit these metaphorical potholes in life. We all at some point feel isolated or alienated or marginalized, but not everybody becomes an extremist. Uh, and I can tell you that you know, if we think of extremism not so much as the ideology, but the motivation or how it manifests. And extremist behaviors can be anything from being a neo-Nazi to joining the Islamic State and going to Syria, but also to adopting crime as an outlet or drug abuse, potentially even self-extremism in the sense of suicide. Uh, for me, that ideology intercepted me at the moment I was most vulnerable. I was detoured to the fringes by those potholes and that broken search for identity, community, and purpose. And on the fringes, extremist narratives are plenty. And it really just depends on which one intercepts you. Do you think there's a problem with straight men in general? Because a lot of this stuff feels a bit like toxic masculinity. I do think that we have conditioned our men, our young boys for centuries to not feel to be cautious of showing their vulnerabilities, uh, to withhold their emotions, to always, you know, be the breadwinners or the soldiers. And we've conditioned them not to feel, to essentially shed their empathy and their compassion. Uh, so, you know, I think that because we've trained young men, you know, generation after generation to do this, we have seeded this notion of toxic masculinity because they are in many cases not equipped to even understand themselves and their own feelings, let alone how to deal with others. Christian, do you find it bizarre? A lot of these figures in what, what we would call, I guess, the alt-right movement, although I hate that term and I imagine you do too, do, do you find it interesting that a lot of those people are gay? Because I can't quite get my head around how they can be a member of a traditionally marginalised community, but yet still That's true. inflict hate on another marginalised community. I can tell you that I have worked with black Nazis. I have worked with uh, gay alt-right members. I have worked with uh, Latino people who were born to Latino parents in Mexico City, in Mexico, who are white nationalists in America. So, and this goes back to, you know, even when I was involved 30 years ago, that we always suspected that were, there were people who, you know, were gay or, or were, weren't white or, you know, whatever, who were part of this. And the truth is, is that it's less about the ideology as it is about the reward that people get from feeling like they have a sense of identity. It is a self-hate thing. It's also a protection thing. Hate is like a suit of armor that you put on to protect yourself from the pain that you're feeling so that you can project it. So, you know, if you're gay and you join, a, you know, a white supremacist movement that is very anti-gay, or if you're a non-white who joins a white supremacist movement that is very, uh, you know, anti-non-white, they are doing it because the rewards that they're feeling from the voids of identity, community, and purpose are are more important to them than what they have to say or do.
what was the main moment where you switched and you went, you know what, I don't, I'm not a neo-Nazi, like this is wrong? Well, you know, I think it was a lot of uh, independent moments that snowballed into something much, much larger that I couldn't deny. Uh, but in 1995, I opened a record store uh, to sell and distribute the racist music that I was both making and importing from, from places like the UK. And it was at that record store because I also knew I couldn't um, apply for a business license at City Hall, you know, just to sell racist music. I had to sell other kinds of music. So I did. I had a small section of hip hop and punk rock and heavy metal and never expected anybody to buy that because people knew who I was. But the truth is, is they did come in to shop for that music. And I know now that they actually came in to challenge me with compassion. And I'm glad that they did. But they came in to buy the punk rock and the hip hop and the heavy metal. And it was the first opportunity in my life that I had to have a meaningful interaction with the people I thought I hated. I had been recruited at 14. Before 14, I didn't have kind of this worldly view. I didn't have access to different people. I was very insulated in my family. So really at, you know, this uh, 18 years old, I was now for the first time being confronted with the people that I thought I hated having humanity, but me still needing to hate them. And they showed me compassion at a time when I least deserved it. And they were the people that I least deserved it from. And it allowed me to replace the demonization that I had in my head about them with humanization. And it was the most powerful, impactful moment for me to really want to grab onto this change that I had been feeling, you know, this undercurrent of for some time. Uh, but, it, it, you know, when I decided I was too embarrassed to sell the racist music, I removed it, but it was 75% of my revenue. So I had to close the store, but it was those uh, experiences in the store that really gave me the courage to kind of step out of what I had been involved in. So your customers who are black and, and LGBT, they know who you are and they know what you believe, but they're still coming in and giving you money. Yeah. You know, I don't know that looking back now, I don't know that a lot of them spent a ton of money at my store, uh, but they came in, you know, to kind of look through the aisles, to look at the stuff, but then to engage me in conversation that I know now was meant to challenge me, but it wasn't aggressive. It wasn't uh, forceful. They didn't break my windows. They didn't slash my tires or protest outside of my store, even though they could have and had every right to do that. But I'm very grateful that they chose to approach me with compassion and with empathy because that gave me the space to really recognize how wrong I was. That is a di di dichotomy, though, isn't it? Like being an LGBT person and entering a place like that um, to start a conversation. Should we all be going to eat at Chick-fil-A? It is never the responsibility for the potential victim uh, to put themselves in that position. I just want to make that clear. They didn't have to do that. Um, but I can tell you the fact that they did was powerful for me. It's part of what I do now when I help people disengage at a point where I think that they're ready. Uh, I will immerse them in situations where they are sitting with the people and having you know fundamental human conversations with the ones that they thought they hated. But certainly it can be dangerous, uh, which is why I wait till they're more open to it, to, till they're more ready for it. So I think on a daily basis, we need to find the people that we think probably deserve our compassion the least. In reality, they're the ones who can probably benefit from, you know, that sensation, that idea of being included uh, the most. Uh, and I know it's a tough concept to be nice to the bad guys, um, but I can also tell you it is the most powerful uh, antidote to hate that I've ever seen. And this is what you spend your life doing now. You've dedicated your life to rehabbing 
racists? Well, I think my overarching goal and my mission in life is to dismantle what I helped build, um, to take it apart piece by piece if I need to. And part of that is by offering a route for disengagement for those who are genuinely questioning uh, what they believe, but also they must have a commitment to repair the damage that they've caused, which is something I've been trying to do for the last 24 years. Uh, but my goal is not to help uh, you know, bad people find a better position in life. It is really to prevent people from going down that path to begin with in the future. And how do you how do you even start to to take somebody like that and, and draw them into the the normal world? Yeah, and, and like how do you? I mean, normal is a terrible word. Sorry. Or, and how do you find them? That's a good question. And I typically will not go looking for people. Uh, I don't have the bandwidth to do that. And frankly, I could walk across the street right now and probably find somebody who needs help disengaging. And the reality is, is most people come to me. Um, I get emails every day, phone calls, text messages, social media messages from people who either want help disengaging because they are in these movements and don't know how to leave. Uh, but mostly I get messages from bystanders, from family members, loved ones, boyfriends, coworkers, uh, asking for help and my advice on how to deal with somebody that they know. And my first piece of advice is don't debate them. I don't even tell them that they're wrong when I work with them. Instead, I listen for those potholes and then I try to fill them in. Without discussing the ideology, without you know debating them on what they believe, I try to put them in situations where they come to that conclusion themselves. And typically, once you bring people onto a firmer foundation, once you start to fill those potholes that in some cases have existed their whole lives, they start to see the road ahead. A gay and a non-gay with Christian Picciolini. Do you think sometimes, though, people are just awful? Have you met people that are beyond hope? Because... Sometimes it is easier to just say to yourself, actually, you know what? That person is just an asshole. Do you come across that or do you believe that actually we are all good people that have been sent down the wrong path? I deal with a lot of assholes. I sit across from, from people that, you know, most people would consider monsters. Uh, and I've conditioned myself uh, over time, over, you know, 24 years of doing this to really try and see the child and not the monster. Regardless of whether that child that I'm working with is 16 or 60, uh, because I know that they were not born to hate, that it was something that they found, that they learned along the way. And I'm also confident that it's something that can be unlearned under the right circumstances. The times when I felt that that person was not redeemable was only because of a lack of help, a lack of resources, a lack of willingness for people to give that person space or a lack of willingness on that person's part to self-reflect because it's painful. One of the things that you talk about in your book, one of the strategies you use is, is immersion where you put somebody uh, in, in, in the same room as somebody who they supposedly hate. Have, have you ever had any experiences where you've put, for example, um, putting a gay person in the room with someone who is homophobic? There have been instances where I've worked with um, the LGBTQ community, you know, for volunteer opportunities with somebody I'm working with to have them, you know, go work at an event with people or in some cases even to have a personal dinner, uh, you know, at the house of a gay couple. Uh, but I, I should be very clear. I don't 
put people in that situation until I am abundantly clear that it's safe. Uh, I would never endanger anybody in that situation. And I also should say I'm always there. Um, and I can tell you that it's been successful every time that I've done it, that people have walked away completely different uh, and with a new understanding or a new perspective on what they need to learn. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really just a magical experience to kind of watch that prejudice melt away once they've been touched by the humanization of the experience. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud to say and, and, and happy to say that those experiences that I've had uh, have always turned out very, very positive. It's like us, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> what can the LGBTQ plus community and in fact humans everywhere do to help stomp out this hate messaging? What is it that is in our own power to do? Well, I can tell you that two things that extremists love, they love silence and they love violence, and we can do neither. We must call out hate when we see it, but we must not be violent when we do it because that empowers them to be the victims. They always hide behind the ideas of free speech and patriotism, uh, but yet they are unwilling to you know, stand with those kinds of values themselves. So it's difficult to attack them, uh, but what we must do is we must be vocal we must call it out. We must be vigilant. We must not ignore it. And we must not play into their hands. So essentially, what we need to do to prevent this, not to help people who are already in, but to prevent it, is we must find people that we think are undeserving of our compassion and give it to them, because I guarantee you that that will impact them the most. And that may prevent them from being uh, attracted to these movements. If you find somebody who is in these movements, the trick is not to engage them in a debate. You can never win in a logical debate against an illogical subject. What we have to do is we have to listen and we have to understand what the motivations are for why they've gone that way. And I guarantee you that the motivations are not one uh, that is ideological. It's not one that's based on hatred. It is one based on self-hatred in most cases. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. To what extent, uh, Christian, do you think that the Trump administration's messages on LGBTQ plus issues have sort of helped to fuel this far right extremism in the US right now. You know, I think that there are so many things that are being said today by the administration that really are eerily similar to things that I used to say 30 years ago or that are still being said in that movement, maybe using less uh, controversial words or less noticeable, you know, hate speech, uh, but are still very marginalizing, are still very exclusive. Uh, and the fact that we don't recognize uh, people as human beings is, is troubling to me. And I think a, a very dark mark for where we might be headed. Are we saying Trump is a Nazi? That's a big thing to say, but is that, let's just call, call it what it is. Is that what's happening? I don't know if I would go as far as saying he's a Nazi because that's a very specific ideology, but I would say that in his policies, in his words, in his actions, in his way he demeans people, what he's doing is very in line with what white nationalists do. Everything from his immigration policies to how we're treating people at the border to how statements that we've made about other countries being shithole countries, about, you know, wanting to mimic kind of this idyllic white European uh, environment is absolutely what I would have said 30 years ago. It's absolutely what avowed white supremacists are saying today. And it is absolutely what the president of the United States is, is pushing in his agendas. I believe we're warriors today and we're fighting for a great cause, which is the white race. Uh, the white people don't have as much pride I, as, as I can think as the black people or Hispanics, and I think we need something to unify ourselves 
And then the white power movement, the national socialist movement, I think that's a, that's a great way to unite our, our people. I wanted to show his birth certificate. And if he wasn't born in this country, which is a real possibility. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. I don't know David Duke. I don't believe I've ever met him. I'm pretty sure I didn't meet him, and I just don't know anything about him. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Christian, thanks so much for, for chatting to us today. I think the work that you're doing is amazing. Uh, the book Breaking Hate is out now if you want to find more out about the work that Christian does and how he helps people disengage from um, violent and, and dangerous movements. We'll speak to you soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Support a gay and a non-gay. Visit gaynongay.com slash donate.